Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and welcome to The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. So digital currency as an idea uh, has captured the imagination of so many people, and it's really been over the last 10 years. It's captured the imagination of students, of engineers, of financial professionals, it's also captured the imagination of economic leaders and increasingly global economic leaders who are grappling with what global digital currency means for the future of the international monetary system and, and how really economic systems work in general. Um, I think when people begin learning about digital currency, they can intuitively grasp that it is going to have a profound impact. It's going to lead to a different world. Um, exactly how people have different opinions, uh, but it, it seems to be something that's really captures people's imagination and intuitively they, they see those changes. We saw a glimpse of that last week when on the money movement, we did a, a sort of tour de force of showing, uh, you know, stable coins like USDC traveling at the speed of the internet from Boston to London to Korea to Buenos Aires to Jakarta to Mumbai. Uh, and moving between people and businesses and marketplaces all at the speed of the internet and really trying to give people uh, some insight into how this uh, technology is changing what becomes possible in the world. Today, we want to explore the future implications of digital currency with someone who has an incredibly profound and deep understanding of the, the global and economic and monetary system. Uh, this is a person who has helped to steer the US and global economy across multiple White House administrations and who's been involved with a number of very important companies and projects that have defined the first wave of fintech innovation. So it's a, a great pleasure to welcome to the show Lawrence H. Summers, the Charles W. Elliott University Professor and Professor Emeritus at Harvard University, the US Secretary of Treasury for President Clinton and the Director of the National Economic Council for President Obama. Welcome, Larry. It's really great to see you. I am very glad to be here. Yes, thank you. I, I think um, the first time we uh, chatted about the idea of global digital currency was literally about seven years ago. Uh, a lot has changed uh, since then on, on many fronts, including in, in the realm of digital currency. Uh, but I think you know, there's, a, there's increasingly a lot more to talk about than there was seven years ago. I think that's... Uh certainly right and certainly those like you who have been pushing this movement forward in various ways i think have made uh substantial uh progress i don't think we're anything like in the eighth inning yet but uh perhaps we're out of the first inning or maybe i should move from baseball to history yeah and uh paraphrase, Can't get the season started uh, yet so it's uh you know paraphrase churchill by saying uh that we're not at the end and we're not at the beginning of the end, but maybe we've gotten to the end of the beginning as there's a, yeah. a flourishing ecology uh, in uh, this area of payments and monetary innovation. Yeah, very much so. And it, I agree with you. It does feel like the, the end of the beginning. Uh, and you know, when we got started, we thought, oh, this will take you know, five to 10 years to kind of get to the place where you can actually do a lot of the things that we 
imagined were possible. And then probably another 10 years before it really has a big impact in the world. And we're kind of right on schedule, but maybe we can start. I want to kind of um, step away from digital currency first and focus in a little bit on the global economic crisis that's happening like right now in front of us. Cause I, I feel like the, the macro context is, is really important to ultimately to the subject matter of the future of the international monetary system. And, you know, we, we heard obviously uh, from the IMF uh, yesterday or today, you know, their, their new forecast for the world economy uh, declining, you know, 5% this year, the U S economy down 8% this year. And, and, you know, that, that actually even has some assumptions in it around uh, some return uh, of economic activity, maybe, you know, just, just to start, um, you know, you got the U.S. and then you've got the rest of the world, you know, this economic crisis, where do you think we are in this and, um, and maybe share a little bit of your outlook? You know, I think it's useful to distinguish between three phases, collapse, bounce back, and slog forward. And I think in the United States, at least for the moment, we are post-collapse. You saw that in the fact that uh, unemployment came down from April to May. There were reasons to doubt those figures, but you also saw a big increase in retail sales from uh, April to May. And you, I went for the first time in three months to a restaurant and sat indoors uh, last night. So I think you're seeing a bounce back from the collapse. That's the good news. Right. I think the bad news is that it's far from clear how sustainable and continuing that bounce back is going to be. We have pretty much opened up enough and have generated enough interaction that on a nationwide basis, we no longer really have the level of COVID or over time, the level of COVID death under control and shrinking. And so right now it looks to me like we're gonna be playing whack-a-mole right. with outbreaks for really quite some time to come. I doubt we're going to have another New York because I think there's more awareness of all of this. And so we won't let things go as far as they did in New York before uh, shutting down. But I also don't think we're going to put this securely in the rear view mirror. And anybody who thought it was going to get put securely uh, in the rear view mirror without a vaccine just needs to contemplate what we've seen in the last 10 days in both Beijing um, and in uh, Germany. So I don't think that bounce back is gonna be to anywhere, to anything like the previous levels that we'd reached. Yeah. And then I think we're gonna be slogging forward until we get to a vaccine. And I hope that uh, you and I and your listeners will all have been vaccinated a year from now. Yeah. To be honest, that's not something I expect. Yeah. I think the lag from the time that a drug company or a set of scientists announce a breakthrough, we have a vaccine, till it's been accepted, tested, practically implemented everywhere, I think those are rather long uh, lags. And 
my expectation um, would be that it will be quite some time. So I don't think we're going to enjoy the as rapid a recovery as people expected. And I think something broadly parallel to that is true uh, with respect to uh, the rest of uh, the world, where you're going to always have a spots of maximum uh, concern. And my guess is that uh, because of vaccines likely to be available fairly pervasively here before it's available fairly pervasively globally, my guess would be that the rest of the world will trail yeah. the United States somewhat in terms of recovery. Yeah, that sounds you know, pretty consistent with, with, with uh, what, what I'm seeing as well. I, I guess um, connecting it to the financial system a little bit here, you know, I, I think first, obviously, this fundamental difference, the U.S. economy, U.S. recovery, U.S. vaccination, et cetera, and then the rest of the world, obviously, sharply different abilities to execute fiscal policy, execute monetary policy, let alone public health responses. So you have this and you have a knock on effect of that, obviously, uh, in terms of international economic activity and market activity and, and, and so on. I guess one of the questions that that uh, we've raised here on the show as well, and, I, and I'd love to talk with you about is, you know, are there scenarios where we really do see banking system risks, uh, deeper solvency risks at the corporate and household level? And, and we can obviously distinguish between, you know, emerging markets and developed markets in the United States. Um, you know, and, and even here, obviously, in the United States, we know Fundamentally, it looks like the kind of reserve ratios have been strong, but there's also, you know, massive exposures uh, in the form of these collateralized loan obligations, these so-called variable interest uh, interest entities, uh, you know, kind of subprime corporate debt and these commercial real estate bonds. A lot of these, not even clearly on balance sheets. And you know, if if we do see structural unemployment and, uh, you know, whack-a-mole kind of situation economically, do we start to see more turnover in, 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 in defaults, whether it's in the corporate debt or, or broader sectors? And, and does that create uh, deeper system-wide risks? Jeremy, there, there are a lot of aspects of that. Uh, very, a very thoughtful uh, question. I guess I would say this, um, historically, we've had two patterns of economic downturn. We've had the kind of economic downturns that we had mostly between uh, 1955 and, 19, and the 1980s, in which inflation became a problem, the Federal Reserve hit the brakes hard, it wasn't able to fully control how, how it hit the brakes. And so the economy skidded into recession. But once the Fed took its foot off the brakes, mm -hmm. then the economy tended to restore itself. That's been one pattern. Right. A second pattern is the pattern we saw most dramatically in 2008, but to some extent we saw in 2000 and in 1990 which is there was a period of substantial financial excess. The bubbles started bursting, deleveraging started happening, mm -hmm. and you saw 
a bit of an economic uh, implosion, more than a bit of an economic implosion in the case of 2008. In both those scenarios, you would expect the financial distress to lead the economic distress. Mm -hmm. Here, we're seeing something rather different, a substantial non-financial inhibition to economic activity. And so you'd expect the economic distress in some ways to inhibit, to lead the financial distress. Right. It can come from a number of forms. It can come from uh, firms that are doing badly, losing the ability to uh, meet their debt obligations. It can come from those with mortgage obligations stopping paying their mortgages. It can come from tenants not making their their payments, right. knowing that their landlords don't really have a viable option of evicting them, either because of the law or because if they did evict them, how would they get a new tenant uh, in their place? Mm -hmm. Or it can come because of international cross-border issues where developing countries have difficulty repaying their debts. And so I think there are a variety of those together. <laughs> come from all of those together. So I think there are a variety of potential sources of financial concern. Frankly, I think that the markets would have imploded completely and we likely would not have a solvent banking system today if the Fed had not acted right. to signal its commitment to backstop on a large scale. And I think as long as the government is prepared to stand by the financial system, it's pretty unlikely that you're gonna have spiraling bank runs um, and the like. But I think we are moving to a substantially government dependent mm -hmm. uh, financial system, you know, which I think is likely to be what we're dealing with for quite some time to come. And yeah. that is close to being without precedent. Yeah, I, I, I see that. And I, I think, again, not to overfocus on the United States, uh, I, as we look around the world, obviously, so many countries do not have the capacity that the Federal Reserve has. The, the Federal Reserve cannot be the lender of last resort to every emerging market in the world, every economy in the world. Yeah, the, the, the fiscal and monetary tools are, are, are challenging. Uh, they're not gonna allow total dollarization to overrun them. And uh, you know, the, 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 this cascades from non-economic to social and political upheaval and the cascading effects of that on, on markets and, and other things too. I think it's going to be very difficult. And I think you're likely over time to get more finance, more and more financial distress in uh, many emerging markets who are likely to have more trouble having the government stand behind their currencies. I think that's yeah. right. It's a, uh, it's it's actually a good segue into the topic of global digital currency and um, and, and sort of the backdrop as as we all know uh, you know Bitcoin itself was sort of born out of the last financial crisis it was cons you know it, it has a, a a philosophy behind it etc which I think everyone's familiar with but but fundamentally though it was 
this technology kind of rose out of the ashes of the last financial crisis. And um, we don't need to get into all the, the details of, of, of Bitcoin and, and its role, but I, I think the idea that, um, you know, th there's a, a, a fundamental technology and economic innovation, uh, one that in this case actually has been you know, very grassroots. It's sort of being built out of uh, the image of the internet. Uh, it's being built out by a lot of, uh, you know, smart technologists, computer scientists, economists, others, um, and, you know, ver versus I think historically, a lot of the uh, uh, economic system innovation was very top down, uh, you know, planned uh, as it were. Um, but, you know, we're, we're now in another global economic, uh, you know, situation, um, unpredictable as we've just discussed exactly how that plays out. And, and the, the role of currencies the role of, of global currencies, uh, you know, reserve currencies, how nations around the world uh, manage their own fiscal policies in the face of some of the stresses that are now happening. You know, it, it kind of creates this environment where um, th there are, it's possible to start imagining new possibilities um, in the international monetary system around digital currency. But maybe before we go deep into any given theme, maybe just I'd, I'd love to have you share your high level perspective on, you know, on digital currency, on, you know, these kind of public networks, blockchain networks and, and the use of digital currency um, in that context. I've got a view, which I think probably puts me um, intermediate between the uh, Bitcoin evangelists and uh, the high traditionalists who see no reason for it. Seems to me that the case for crypto historically rests on uh, three pillars of which I think one has a quite substantial chance of being valid and important and sufficient to support a very big table. And I don't particularly believe the other two. One case is a case um, that governments are going to debauch all the real current, all the traditional currencies that the pressures of rising debt, dealing with crises, standing behind banking systems, all of that is going to lead to hyperinflation. And then people aren't going to want to be putting their money in currencies. They're going to be wanting to be putting their money in gold, but there are a variety of problems with gold. And so internet exchangeable gold is going to, in some proper form, is going to become immensely valuable. That's possible. Um, I don't read existing currencies as being on their way to being debauched. Right. Seems to me that uh, while certain monetary aggregates as measured have risen. There are good technical ways to understand that. And you look ahead at market expectations from index bonds. People think that the real problem is that central banks in Japan, Europe, and the United States won't be able to meet their inflation targets of 2%, won't be able to get inflation up to 2% mm -hmm. even over the next uh, generation. Mm -hmm. So that might be a wrong bet, but I think 
the odds that these that traditional currencies are going to become so inflationary and it's going to be so difficult when they become inflationary to earn an interest rate on them that people are going to be seeking some separate really scarce hard asset i i just don't think the the that that's going to drive a major crypto industry second thing i think is uh, that I don't think crypto is going to be accepted as some kind of libertarian paradise. Um, I don't, I know that there are people who believe that financial privacy in terms of the ability to transfer money um, is a fundamental human right and that without it there will be substantial infringements on, on freedom and i understand those arguments but i guess my attitude is more captured by the fact that the 500 euro note is always referred to as the bin laden mm -hmm. and that suggests something about what when you have super privacy mm -hmm. tends to be a lot the result so i don't think governments will permit tax evaders, money launderer, money launderers, um, privacy cravers and zealots to use this uh, technology to advance their privacy relative to what they have now. I think if anything around concerns about regulation, corruption, tax evasion, Right. Governments will want less financial privacy over time and they will succeed in getting what they want. I think the case for um, uh, all of this innovation will lie in the fact uh, that uh, there's a ridiculous degree of friction in uh, today's world around doing quite complex things. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the 8% that it can cost me to send money to my 8% in two days, that it can cost money, cost me to send money to my kid when their kid is due, my kid is in a study abroad program, whether it's the two and a half plus percent that it costs me every time I use a Visa card, in uh, a department store, whether it is the three bucks I have to pay for the routine act of getting cash um, out. Um, and I could go on with examples of this kind. I think the friction, friction both in terms of monetary payment and friction in terms of effort that's involved in exchange is excessive. Yeah. And I think that the friction isn't just coming from the greed of the middlemen, middle people, although there is greed of the middle people, it's coming from the various difficulties and challenges associated with uh, mutual trust. As you know better than I, computer science theory on which a lot of this is based was referred to as the Byzantine generals problem. And how do you get 
a group of people who don't trust each other to nonetheless be able to do business uh, together. And innovation in institutional form that permits interaction where it otherwise wasn't possible. Right. That's what the common law corporation uh, right. was. That's what the contract uh, was. And I think the kind of innovation that's involved in coming out of uh, the crypto community is very fundamental. And we tend to associate the idea of innovation with new machines and new medicines, but it's also new ways of doing things. Yeah, I mean, this is like and social and institutional. Social, right. And so I think it's a very, very important kind of innovation. But my own view is that that's where the future uh, lies. And I think it could be a very large and substantial uh, future, but I'm not gonna go with the arguments about the, all the other currencies are gonna be debauched right. or the arguments right. about uh, the centrality of privacy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the you know, our focus, as you know, is, uh, you know, we we built this standard U.S. dollar coin USDC. It's how do you how do you take uh, you know the leading reserve currency and and make it available as a digital currency and and get those you know trustless transactions, the speed of the internet, the cost efficiency, and you know and the programmability, the composability, all these things you can do with it. I think that's very very exciting, and we're seeing that grow very fast. And and it's it's leading. Uh, into a number of interesting questions, which do relate to the question of how governments are going to respond, and 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 I would I would say there's sort of two areas to maybe to talk through. I think, um, you know, one is um, is really the, the the in some ways the threat that uh, things like stable coins might pose to uh, governments around the world, where you know effectively you have digital currencies that can be accessed with any digital wallet on any smartphone by anyone anywhere. And as I like to say, you know, pe people in uh, pick your Latin American country or uh, maybe a South Asian country or, or what have you can vote with their smartphones. And in the same way that they said, hey, I want to I want to go over the top of the Internet and have a free communications platform like WhatsApp. And I don't care about my local telephone company or my government regulated communication system. I'm just going to use the Internet. And, you know, these kinds of digital currency innovations allow people to kind of have an economic system that goes over the top of the Internet. And then people can choose to participate in that. And, uh, you know, will governments allow that? Will they have a choice? Um, it's a, a, a very interesting question. Um, and then the other is sort of ultimately the relationship to central banks. But I want to maybe start with the first and and hear your thoughts on, you know, this can happen very fast, you know. You talk about, you know, Libra and and the rising growth of global stable coins. The G20 and FSB is now coming up with policies on this to, to say, hey, what are the rules of the road for these? But you know, very quickly we could have people everywhere sort of choosing which currency system they want to participate in a lot more easily than they can today. I think it's a very hard thing to know. Um, the metric system really is better than the English system. It's simpler, it's any calculation is easier, it's internally coherent between weights and volumes. It's just better. 
but the inertia of the network mm-hmm. turns out to cause things to carry on for a very long time. And I don't think we know how much inertia surrounds private behavior around a national currency. There is a phenomenon that, you know, has been observed at various junctures in Argentina, has been observed at various other junctures of dollarization. Mm -hmm. When a national currency is sufficiently chaotic, incoherent, and uncertain, people start holding $100 bills and start holding $50 bills. There are U.S. banks that are happy to ship them there, and people start quoting prices in dollars because who knows what a price in pesos will mean, and economies become gradually dollarized, Mm -hmm. and then the dollar is their de facto uh, currency. The fact that you don't have to hold paper wads, and you can do it with your cell phone, and all of that, which is probably everyone, everyone is very comfortable with that in these places, right? They probably all probably operates in the direction of reducing the threshold, yeah, of getting out of the local currency system, right? On the other hand, when people were getting into dollars, it was like the dollar with George Washington and uh, 250 years of U.S. tradition mm-hmm. and all that, and it's not that there haven't been incidents in the cryptocurrency community such as to cause alarm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be a source of pressure and there may be economies where there's a, uh, con- where there's a conversion. Uh, mm-hmm. I suspect the general law about technology that things take longer to happen than you think they will and then they happen faster than you thought they could. I suspect that's going to be yeah. uh, operative uh, operative here. Yeah, uh, sort of p- pick your time frame. We're we're seeing interesting indications of, of that, and you know we we all remember the Arab Spring, and uh, you know when you know all of a sudden people had the freedom to communicate with each other, and and all of a sudden they were able to, you know, overthrow regimes. Uh, with the amount of you know, fiscal and monetary stress that exists in a number of markets and, and that's sharpening, obviously, you know, and, and then this technology becoming kind of effectively widely available, scalable, et cetera, it's possible we could see some of that accelerate. It, it, does, it does tie to, I think, um, a, a larger question, which is, you know, the, the advent of, of global digital currencies, the fact that a, a, a liability of the Federal Reserve, a dollar liability of the Federal Reserve can exist as a, as a digital asset that can effectively exist anywhere the internet exists. The fact that a liability of the People's Bank of China can exist as a, as a digital currency where effectively any internet computer in the world can now settle directly with the People's Bank of China. That hasn't been anticipated. We had a, a kind of superstructure, the Bretton Woods structure, the SWIFT structure. We had this sort of superstructure and now, you know, these the sort of transactions and currencies can just happen directly over the internet. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, if some of this leads us into rethinking ideas of global currencies. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, uh, you know, synthetic 
global digital currencies uh, that are composed of, say, a Chinese yuan, a digital euro, a digital dollar, um, and if that becomes more palpable over- I think this could be a long time. I, I do think, I think this does have what I might call the Esperanto problem. Uh, Esperanto might have been a better language than any of the other languages. It might well be that everybody learning Esperanto really was a better thing, but people were kind of pretty attached to what they were attached to, and it was never quite able to get off, get off the ground and get to a critical mass. And so I, I'm sure there'll be a variety of kinds of innovation, but I'd be kind of surprised and you know, I've been surprised many times uh, before uh, if we got to some kind of global digital currency that was what people thought in terms of mm -hmm. uh, in my lifetime. No. Um, I could be wrong. I think, and I think we will see a ton of innovation that will work through stable coins and that will permit cross-border exchange with more, with more ease. But at the end of the day, I think the power of the nation state is pretty, is, uh, pretty strong mm -hmm. and finance is pretty fundamental. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't expect it all to be um, swept away. Yeah. I mean, I think the model is you had all these phone companies and they were really powerful and they were kind of central. And then you sort of had Skype and right. they sure. didn't have a business anymore and nobody could mess with people's ability to communicate. Right. right. I, I, I'd be surprised if that was the story of the next 10 or 20 years in uh, financial innovation with that degree of starkness, but I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. I think one of the, you know, the, the, the things that we've tracked really closely and I've spent a lot of time both in China and, and uh, you know, and, and know the folks who are, you know, building their digital currency. Um, I think, um, you know, there is this uh, desire for China to, you know, play a much larger role in the world economy. And they're, they're, they obviously are. Uh, there has been um, a, a desire to have the, you know, the, the yuan and uh, play a, a larger role in trade and settlement. And, and, and I think there's also been a desire to uh, have a, uh, effectively, a financial system that's not entirely uh, controlled by, you know, the West and SWIFT. And um, with the development of the, the, the Chinese digital currency, you know, effectively, they've, they've created a model where a household, a firm, a nation state can kind of directly transact and settle with China over the internet and you don't need SWIFT. You don't need any of the regulations uh, th that control that. You can just bilaterally over the internet start to, to, to achieve that. And obviously there's sort of the, the infrastructure overlay of the Belt and Road and, 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 and the kind of growth aspirations there. But, you know, <clears throat> I, I wonder whether we do see a digital currency native monetary systems that start to compete um, and you know we've had uh, we, might, we might you might be right and uh, it's certainly a po it's certainly a possibility I think that all the things you said about China were true I think the more fundamental thing 
is that they want to control the lives of their citizens, including the financial lives of their citizens, including the ability of their citizens to do what their citizens want to do, which is to take their cash out of the country. And I think that a system that doesn't, I think a system that freely enables moving wealth and resources out of the country is going to be a system that makes them deeply nervous. And I think a system that is so restricted that it isn't possible to do that isn't going to be much of a global digital currency. And so I'm not seeing this with nearly the sayings that the crypto community is, I have to confess. Yeah, I, 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 think, I, think, I think that um, that's right. I mean, the, the not opening the capital account and, and not allowing RMB to, to trade freely and, and liquid and so on is, is sort of the gating, you know, major gating piece here. But now the, the, the mechanism <clears throat> to allow you know, RMB to have global reach is, is they, they sort of built it um, and they, all they needed was the internet. Um, so it does, it does uh, even within the constraints that the, the intense constraints that they put around it and the control, control structure that they put around it, it does at least create a way to build an RMB denominated set of economic activity that does not depend on a dollar settled SWIFT system. Um, and, and so there, there may be some of that. And I, I, in a different context, it's been my view that the U.S. needs to uh, scale back its abuse of the SWIFT system mm. to pursue its more parochial foreign policy objectives. Mm -hmm. I think if you want to operate a trusted public utility, you can derive some pr private benefit from the fact that you're operating the public utility. But if you try to derive too much, people no longer trust you to operate the public utility. Yeah. And I think the U.S. has been pushing that margin in the way it's made use of the SWIFT system. Yeah. But if you ask me, is that going to play out that we're going to keep pushing it and not take feedback from bad responses to the point where things are likely to tip towards the Chinese uh, digital currency taking on a large part of global commerce, I wouldn't say impossible, but that wouldn't be where I'd be betting. Yeah, it, it's uh, <clears throat> the whole bypass SWIFT thing is, is, is obviously not just China. It's sort of uh, even things like USDC, the stablecoin, like y y people can transact it directly. There's, there's, not, there's no SWIFT messages. There's no SWIFT transactions. I, I, I think it's a hugely important issue and it's one that I've been wanting to study the relationship between this innovation and the power of the SWIFT system. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, this has been a, a, a really wonderful conversation, uh, covered a lot of ground, D deeply appreciate it, Larry. And uh, I've really enjoyed the chance to be with you and I've admired your various innovative activities and those of Circle over the years. Thank you very much. Thank you, have a great day. Bye-bye. Well, some really tremendous uh, thinking and uh, perspective from the secretary. Um, really, really uh, pleased to have him, you know, sharing perspective here today. Um, the, the 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 tail end of that conversation actually really leads us into uh, a topic, which is actually going to be the topic of the next uh, episode of the Money Movement, which will be in two weeks. Um, we're going to be having a session on 
the implications of global digital currency from a governance perspective. How can, dig, how can global digital currencies function? How should they be governed? How should central banks interact with them, the private sector? What's the inner, inner interaction of those? And we're gonna have uh, two fantastic guests joining us. Uh, one is uh, Sheila Warren, who leads uh, blockchain efforts for the World Economic Forum, and in particular has put together the Digital Currency Global Governance Consortium, which is a consortium of uh, central bankers, major financial institutions, leading crypto uh, market participants that are trying to drive towards policy and technology standards around global digital currency. And uh, Dante Disparte, who's vice chairman of the Libra Association, which itself is creating a form of governance uh, around its new global digital currency project as well. So it should be an excellent discussion in a couple of weeks. Hope you enjoyed today. And until next time, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you. Thank you.